So I'm here on the Bridge Podcast with David Acevedo. Uh, David is a trumpeter, improviser, uh, composer based in New York. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, David. I'm looking forward to chatting about stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. My pleasure. Uh, so, uh, you know, I usually ask people about their coffee habits or coffee preferences, but um, we've already determined that you aren't a coffee guy. So um, is there any other sort of like important beverage in your life? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I, for some reason, I never got into coffee, um, never cared for the taste very much. And I've always been a morning person by nature. So I never needed it for that reason either. Um, made it through high school and college without starting. Um, but I've taken a liking to some very casual uh, tea drinking in the last few years. Um, so there's that. But even then, it's decaffeinated. So there you gotcha. go. <laughs> uh, what type of tea are we talking like chamomile um, or mostly herbal teas yeah um a lot of mint teas um some other kind of root teas like ginger teas and things like that nice awesome yeah well uh you know that's that's as much of an answer as somebody being a fanatic about coffee so uh i've, I've gleaned what i need to glean um <laughs> Cool. So uh, I first encountered your music uh, through Score Follower and your tune Hyperhocket, which uh, I, I became really obsessed with. Uh, a really cool tune. Um, I, I wanted to sort of use that as a jumping off point to discuss uh, some stuff uh, musically. But what, what was the sort of backstory with this tune? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for your kind words um, on Hyperhocket. The backstory there was um, that there was a global pandemic and um, therefore there wasn't a lot of uh, playing with others going on. Um, so I was kind of stuck at home, just me and my trumpet and my computer. And I thought that it would be cool to start writing some pieces for multiple trumpets that I would record um, on my own. And of course, you know, overdub and things like that. Um, so, Hyperhocket, I think, is the third of those that I wrote. Um, and it's actually the only one so far that I've really brought to completion and recorded. Um, the other two are kind of in more fragmentary form, and then other life things happen, and I haven't really um, returned to them yet. Um, so the idea behind Hyperhocket, um, I kind of asked myself, you know, if you're a musician, you probably know that trumpet has some pretty serious limitations, right? Um, it's a very difficult instrument, a very unforgiving instrument. Um, it is not, um, it doesn't lend itself to, you know, a traditional standard of virtuosity um, like some other instruments do, such as, I don't know, violin, piano, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and so there are things on trumpet that are just, extremely difficult to execute, if not impossible. Um, but not if you're using multiple trumpets, right? So throughout these pieces, I kind of try to explore different things that I can do with more than one trumpet that I could not do um, by myself because my name is not Peter Evans. Um, so uh, one of those things, of course, would be chords, right? Mm -hmm. um, trumpet is, of course, a monophonic instrument. Um, but then another, and there are chords in hyperhocket, but the, the main thing in that would be, you know, just continuous 
streams of notes with no time to breathe and huge register leaps. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically the least possible thing to do on trumpet, right? Um, so what I did with with Hyperhocket, um, I wrote it for four trumpets, and I basically split the range, kind of the comfortable playing range from bottom to top into four discrete um, sections. Um, and then I wrote kind of melodic lines that use all of them and jump up and down um, from parts one through four um, in a way that is possible with four trumpets, but that would be really, really basically impossible on one. Right. Interesting. Um, and now the idea of a hocket is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's basically like a distributed melody between different players. Uh, can you think of good examples of that coming up uh, in previous uh, pieces from other people? Yeah, right. So hocketing is um, actually harkens back to the medieval period of um, Western art music. Um, and it's basically kind of where, yeah, like you said, a, a melody is distributed throughout an ensemble such that one singer or player is playing one note in the melody and then another one is playing <clears throat> after them and then another one's playing after them. So this melody is kind of distributed throughout the ensemble. Um, and typically only one person has part of the melody at a time. Um, but this kind of experienced a resurgence in some of uh, contemporary classical music, um, particularly within the kind of minimalist and post-minimalist spheres. Mm. Um, so there's a pretty popular piece by Louis Andreessen, um, who is a, a Dutch uh, minimalist composer. Um, he actually passed away very recently. Mm. Um, but he, he wrote a piece called um, Hocketus, um, H-O-K-E-T-U-S. Um, and in, in typical minimalist fashion, the whole thing is basically a giant pocket in which you have two ensembles, one on either side of the stage, um, and they pass this melody back and forth to each other. Um, and, you know, if you, the way it's recorded, and if you see it live, if you're sitting in the center, you kind of, you know, you, you hear the music going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which gives it kind of a, a spatialized element, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that that's kind of the deal with with hocketing uh, that I explored here with four trumpets. Nice. Um, was was the spatialization something that was like a priority for you, or I mean, like uh, the way you exp- explained it was as if kind of you wanted to achieve more with a, a group of trumpets than you could with a single one. Uh, was spatialization also part of it? Or? Yeah, um, I tried to create some spatialized effects, um, like with panning and things, but. For some reason, it it kind of sounded goofy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I might revisit that um, aspect of the piece. Um, but there's kind of a there is a spatial element in terms of the vertical space. Hearing the um, the extreme low and extreme high registers of the trumpet being played in such a close proximity to one another is kind of an unusual thing and 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 i think creates space this way um, but not necessarily horizontally gotcha now um 
I feel like, you know, when I came across the tune, I was looking through the comments. Some people, I think, have some issues with kind of like the uncanny valley thing of like it sounding very like, but like, I don't want to say that it sounds synthetic, but there's something that's like, like, even those rhythms are like, those are some, some rhythms that are uh, complicated. So uh, uh, how, I mean, I don't know what I'm asking here, but like, uh, uh, was this like something that you fully recorded? Like in my mind, it partially, I was like, is it just like a sampler of him playing? Like <laughs> it's, it's very crisp and clean and locked in. So like if, if it's, you know, totally performed, then kudos to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's not. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So first off, I'll say usually when I compose, I have no idea where a piece is going until mm -hmm. I actually start. Um, I'm not a composer who kind of plans things out completely ahead of time and then puts pen to paper. Um, so with this, the initial idea was purely the idea of splitting the register into four sections and going from there. Um, and as I wrote the piece, um, I realized pretty quickly, this is not really performable at all. Um, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the level of rhythmic precision necessary um, to execute this with four live trumpeters, I think, is just really impractical. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of faced a crossroads with the piece. I, I was either going to revise it heavily to make it performable or just keep going with what my ear was telling me to do and not really worry about that. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, I went with the latter option. Um, I just kept going um, and I treated it as kind of a, a studio piece, if you will, you mm -hmm. know, and, and plenty of people write music that they kind of construct in the studio that they know is not feasible for live performance for various reasons. And I mm -hmm. think that kind of using the studio as an instrument in that way or as a compositional tool um, is perfectly valid, you know. Totally. Um, but yes, it, it did result in a sound that for most of it is decidedly artificial, I would say. I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't shy away from that term. Um, and as I worked on the piece, I started to get interested in the idea of music that's intentionally artificial. Um, and then within the piece, I contrast that with more um, organic elements, if you will. So you have this very, like you said, very locked in, extremely precise um, trumpet playing that I did basically create a sampler. Mm -hmm. um, I recorded one, maybe more of each pitch than I needed um, and just arranged it within logic. Um, and then from there, you know, there, you know, added electronic effects on top of that. Like there's, there's very different levels of reverb throughout the piece. Um, and then I added more organic elements. Like for example, towards the middle, there's a, there's a section in which um, there's two flugelhorns uh, improvising um, at the same time above this um, kind of triplet groove from the trumpet that that is set up prior to that um, so that's when you kind of get both um, but I I understand when if, if someone does not care for the piece because of the artificial element um, I totally get it's not for everyone but kind of what I was going for with that was kind of drawing from from hip-hop in a way mm, you totally. know in which you have like for example um, 
record scratching or like a record that's skipping, you know, th that effect only really works if you're hearing the exact same thing repeated. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have these sections in which I'm repeating one measure for, I don't know, a dozen or more times, you know. Um, and I think that if there were a bunch of micro variations in there, um, it would have been as powerful as an effect as if I were repeating the same exact thing over and over again, which gives you that record skip type of feel. Mm. Um, so, but again, I, I actually kind of like that the piece was a little, uh, I don't know, polarizing. <laughs> mm -hmm. There were some, some people thought it was really cool. And some people were like, this is just like robot music. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's fine with me. Cool. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I was kind of like, uh, when I saw any sort of like tinge of negativity in a comment, I was like, they just don't get it, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Conlon Nankaro. And like, I feel like mm. if you listen to that around anybody, they're just like, what is this? This mechanical, non-musical thing. It's like, it's brilliantly musical. Uh, do you listen to Nankaro at all? Or A little you... bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of familiar. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm happy that people listen to the piece and I mean everyone was nice about it like mm -hmm. there were no nasty people in the comments um but I think that perhaps some people either ignored or just skipped over the possibility that the artificial element was intentional mm -hmm. um so I kind of explained that in a reply but you know mm -hmm. to each his own uh, there's some other interesting things. I mean, first of all, actually, I should ask about the rhythm. Uh, so, I mean, there are these measures where, like, you're in 7-8 and you do triplets. And <clears throat> I, I don't know the term for this or if there is a term for it, but um, I think it's the type of rhythm that you would see, uh, that you'd think about when you first learn about a triplet, triplet and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm learning that this is not playable um, mm. just because of where the triplet's placed. And so I think people get in the sense, get the sense that they aren't, supposed to play that rhythm that's incorrect but it's just like no it's just an uncomfortable rhythm um what do you i mean is there a term that you're using for that type of thing where like the triplets asymmetrically placed or whatever <laughs> i don't know if there's a term for that um i know there's some if i remember correctly there's some like viral adam neely video where he's explaining you know <laughs> the the unplayable rhythm which is basically triplets that are on offbeats mm -hmm. um but I don't know. I think with enough ear training, it's very playable. Um, there are instances in which notation softwares will give you trouble for trying to do certain things. Like, mm -hmm. for example, if like it doesn't let you have triplets that cross bar lines. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also doesn't allow for things that some people would call irrational time signatures. Right. Um, so it, not in this piece, but in in some past music, for example, I would have something that, that's in pretty standard kind of, I don't know, four or four meter. Um, but then I wanted one measure in which the measure consists of five triplets, right? Um, as far as I know, you can't do that, or it's very hard to do that within the notation software. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that you can you can hear, you know, and so that's a little frustrating. Totally. Um, and, and I think it's it's interesting to think about the ways in which 
the technical limitations of notation softwares and recording softwares actually they lead us you know and they kind of shape us into what we think is possible um and i think in a lot of ways that 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 kind of has has a negative impact upon the music yeah i think yeah that's uh, a very interesting uh thing i mean like it's not just limiting what we think is possible but what we think is good even or what we think is beautiful which is unfortunate um and i feel like it's my desire to break those uh sort of limitations but you know i'm limited still by the uh, the software yeah i mean you open you open a daw like logic and what do you see default 4 4 meter 120 bpm you know mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> even even that alone is is just carrying so many assumptions with it you know mm-hmm. um and i get i understand that you know um, Apple and other software developers want to make their software accessible for beginners, musicians. Um, but just even even those parameters in that grid style interface, um, right off the bat, can kind of limit what you would even think of doing. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, so, in addition to these rhythms, uh, you know, you have like these kind of funny instances of echo that you notate explicitly with dynamics and <laughs> i've rarely seen this done before like i think i've heard a few people do sort of something that gestures at this but uh what was the thinking behind that because you know like that's that's an interesting way to go about it yeah so basically the idea there was at that point i was fully comfortable with the artificial aspects of the music and so i was kind of like okay let me just lean into this super hard in certain instances um, so I would have like a figure repeated on four consecutive beats, um, but then mark it down one dynamic each time and then tell the mixing engineer I was working with, Hey, just take this and literally like fade down the volume on each beat, um, which creates this super, super artificial sounding mm-hmm. echo effect. Um, but that's exactly what I wanted. Um, and then there are, there are other instances in the piece in which there is a more natural um, crescendo and decrescendo. Um, but that, that, was, that was the idea there, just to make it very plain that I am purposely using mm-hmm. um, the studio and the software as part of the composition process and not just as a means to you know, produce the music and to make it sound nice. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And uh, you have some of like microtonal chords towards the end, and like I'm I'm decently familiar with some uh, you know microtonal thinking, but uh, when it comes to notation, I'm just like like I don't know Ben Johnston's notation whatsoever, <laughs> but I I get certain aspects of how it's der- derived. Um, how would you say you like are those just just intonation chords, or what's the deal with there? Okay, so those were created completely intuitively. Um, okay. I. I actually don't know a lot about microtonality myself. Um, I'm pretty new to using it. Um, And right now I kind of use it more as an effect than for any theoretical reason. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I couldn't even tell you what chords those are in terms of note names and and degrees and things like that. Um, Basically what I did for the microtonal section at the end, um, including the chords, but also the section before that, is um, I took some of the pitches from the beginning of the piece and kind of scrambled their order and then also um, threw in some microtonal detunings there. Um, 
so the chords at the end was basically me just playing with those pitches from the beginning um, and then adding either quarter step down or quarter step up to kind of create a new color out of them. So I was, I was recycling old material. Um, it wasn't supposed to explicitly reference the beginning, um, but I think hopefully um, subconsciously the listener would think, okay, this sounds like vaguely familiar for some reason, but I'm not really sure why. Um, so that's where those chords came from. I would love to learn more about the theory of microtonality and there are just, it's kind of an overwhelming part of the field. You know, there's just so much research that has been done on that. Um, but I'm, at this point, I'm not, you know, the, the sort of composer who's like, I want a D that is 27.5 cents sharp, you know, totally. um, and no disrespect to people do that. Um, for me, though, it's more of just an effect that, that lets us leave um, standard uh, tuning and, and get some different colors. I think, uh, you know, for myself, I, I've been interested in that stuff, like the microtonal world, but at the same time, your instrument limits you. And like, I assume that trumpet's the same way, um, where it's just like, to get those accurately, it's going to be a whole undertaking that, you know, yes. is the wrong instrument. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is pretty difficult. Um, although there are actually many pitches on trumpet in which you have one or more alternate fingerings. Mm. um that are actually naturally uh, out of tune true. um and sense. so if you use those you can actually approximate things like quarter tones very closely um for some okay for mo most of the trumpet range you can do this um there are no alternate fingerings for the lowest notes that's where it gets kind of hairy because you kind of have to use your lip and use your air to um, detune it the hard way um and then also there, every each valve on the trumpet has a little tuning slide attached to it, right? There's the main tuning slide for the instrument, but each valve also has a little one. Um, and you can manually extend the first valve tuning slide and the third valve tuning slide. And on some trumpets, the second one as well. Um, so you, I think you'd be surprised on how, how many different microtonal pitches you can get. Um, and I always like to joke that I usually play microtonally by accident anyway, because I'm just out of tune. Um. <laughs> that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that. that. I mean, if it's coming from overtones, that would totally make sense. That would be perfect for like a just intonation thing. Um, exactly. I, I'm, I'm maybe projecting my own qualms with my instrument onto your instrument. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some, uh, I don't know who makes it. I saw some crazy thing where it's basically these magnetic fretboards mm -hmm. um, where you can like remove the fretboard and put in a different one that has a different tuning attached to it. Yeah, a buddy um, of mine has a, a company called Microtone that's doing that. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Guitars out of Michigan. Um, yeah. So the problem is being solved, but <laughs> yeah. I, I would have money for a new guitar, so I'm just going to yeah. enjoy equal temperament for now. It's not um, as bad as trying to go microtonal on piano. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, with that, uh, the name Hyperhocket, um, I like throwing hyper in front of things. And I've talked to um, like Denman Maroney recently, who does the hyper piano, as well as Bill Satheris, who also has a hyper piano that's a different hyper piano. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then it makes me think of people like uh, like Michael Dessen, who does like this digital extension of the trombone, or George Lewis, who has this Voyager. And I know you studied with George, uh, or I'm pretty sure you studied with him. Uh, yeah, he was kind of one of my my mentors during my undergrad at Columbia. Um, it's kind of funny. I I entered the school having no idea about the music department at all. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of realized, oh, this is an amazing department that includes people like George Lewis, um, who's now one of my heroes. Um, but yeah, so he, I mean, he's done, he's kind of one of those people that does everything at an extremely high level. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of many things he has done is, is the Voyager uh, kind of artificial intelligence improviser. Nice. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on sort of the hyper trumpet, if you will, like extending the instrument by mm. digital means or like the way that Denman Maroney does it with the piano is like basically playing the inside of the piano with various tools. Um, and I'm just interested in extending the instrument uh, in that way that George does. So, yeah, yeah um, I think there there are a lot of possibilities. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a double bell trumpet before, um, but that is that is in existence. Um, and it basically, I've never played one, but it it has a second bell um, that you can trigger. Um, and so, for example, you could mute one bell and keep the other bell unmuted and, and that way rapidly shift between muted and unmuted sound in a way that you can't do with a normal trumpet. Um, and there's all sorts of other things to do with that. Um, related to what you said about the piano, I think there, there can be ways to take advantage of um, the physical material of the trumpet more. Um, mm. For example, if you were to um, attach a contact microphone onto the trumpet and, and play percussively with some of the mechanical sounds that naturally arise from the inner workings of the trumpet, but that you don't necessarily hear um, because it's a trumpet. <laughs> it's very loud on its own. Um, but I mean, if there's, if there's one person who, um, exemplifies hyper trumpet, I referenced him earlier, um, in our time together, that's Peter Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, are you I've familiar with name. Peter? I've heard his yeah. name, but I'm not familiar with his music. Okay. So I don't want to blaspheme, but <laughs> in my opinion, he is the most technically gifted trumpeter ever. Like awesome. no, no exaggeration. Like he, he does things on trumpet that are just simply impossible for almost anyone in the world. Um, and with that, he has kind of, I mean, he, he's a, he's a very maximalist musician in so many ways. He, he has all kinds of ridiculous extended techniques. Um, his circular breathing and his endurance is on another level. So he can, he, he would be the one person who could possibly play my piece by himself. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and he works with electronics as well. And so I, I think, um, he's, he's one of my heroes for sure. And he, along with other trumpeters like Nate Woolley, um, Graham Haynes is another, uh, hero of mine. He, although he's a cornetist technically, um, but they, they have all taken the trumpet into very new territory, either acoustically 
um, or in the case of Graham Haynes and some others using um, electronic effects as well. Very cool. Um, you started to mention uh, sort of some stuff about like the conventional sense of virtuosity and the trumpet and how it's, you know, uh, maybe not cut out for the same expectations. And I, I feel similarly about the guitar, maybe not like, I feel like it has plenty of uh, you know, notoriety as being something that people do cool stuff on or whatever, but um, I still have my issues with my instrument. But I'd be curious to hear you um, sort of riff on that, uh, you know, like instrument limitation type stuff with trumpet. Yeah. Um, so, so I have a background in jazz. Um, and one of the things you learn pretty early on um, as a jazz trumpeter is that very generally speaking, there are kind of two, there are two very general streams of trumpet soloists that you encounter throughout jazz history, right? You have your Freddie Hubbard's and your Woody Shaw's and your Lee Morgan's mm -hmm. who do have the level of dexterity to really compete with saxophonists, for example, mm -hmm. um, or with pianists. Um, and then you have other trumpeters, probably the most, the best example of this would be Miles Davis, um, in which, you know, I'm sure Miles could have reached that level if he wanted to, but he took it another direction and I think honed in on the trumpet's unique expressive capabilities um, that were decidedly less virtuosic, at mm -hmm. least in that traditional sense. Um, and so, you know, he's known for his simplicity. Um, a player I just mentioned, uh, Graham Haynes, um, is very much within that vein as well. Um, that's kind of where I see myself um, in, in terms of, you know, I, I think you should be able to shred <laughs> mm -hmm. if you want to. Um, but that I, I think there's a, a kind of, simpler um, but not simplistic um, mode of trumpet playing that doesn't try to compete with certain other instruments in that way and instead goes its own direction. Gotcha. Um, wh where would you play somebody like uh, Ambrose Akinmusier? Oh, he's, he's uh, well, first of all, let me say I'm obsessed with Ambrose um, and his playing. Uh, he's also a really nice guy. Um, but he, he, to me would definitely fit within the first of just like super dexterity trumpet playing. Um, and I love it. And so I don't, I don't mean to, um, imply that one is better than the other, but, um, I think there are ways in which, um, a more minimal style of trumpet playing can get, get different things out of the instrument that are compelling. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, something for me as a guitarist is like, I feel like if you are going to play, uh, as like the front man of a band and, you know, you're going to play, play the heads on all the charts or whatever, um, there's this kind of like underlying sense of why aren't you like playing all your strings or like, why aren't you doing more vertical stuff? Why aren't you doing more harmonic stuff? And there's a certain freedom and just being like, I'm monophonic, like this, this thing's monophonic. Uh, so, uh, is there any sort of way that you feel free? freed up by that monophonic element or is that a hidden superpower in some way that guitarists can't appreciate? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, cause usually 
I don't know. I often feel very frustrated by the fact that Trump is monophonic. Um, I would too, and I'll, but <laughs> and I'll try to try to get around that in various ways, like using harmonizers mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but I I think you're right. I I think um, naturally I kind of gravitate towards music that is less centered around harmony, mm. um, and. I think you know that I, I'm a big Steve Coleman fan, so we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the reasons for that is because of my background as a trumpeter in that I, not that I'm opposed to harmony, but that at least in the traditional sense, like I've never, um, I've never felt compelled to create music that is just saturated in harmony because I play this monophonic instrument. And so um, a lot of times I'm more attracted to um, kind of more minimal textures um, Mm -hmm. with single melodies or perhaps two melodies going at once rather than these big rich chords. Um, So yeah, let's call it a superpower. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like as a guitarist, if you play, you know, the head on a tune, then it's, inevitably just going to sound less convincing than if a horn player plays it. Mm. Uh, uh, Yeah, it's tricky because, well, you can manipulate your dynamics on guitar in various ways, but it it doesn't sound quite as natural um, Mm -hmm. as it does with wind instruments, right? Um, And of course, like, if you're playing piano or something, then it's especially difficult. I mean, Mm -hmm crescendos within the same pitch are just not possible <laughs> without True. some kind of help from a computer um so yeah i think i think that um the more i don't know more organic wind powered sound of the trumpet and other horns does lend itself more to that but um i yeah i i know plenty of guitars who can also do it convincingly too <laughs> yeah. i suppose it's kind of extending like the voice or like the you know extending your you know wind uh versus extending your fingers or something right that's true yeah that's true um so you you mentioned uh steve coleman and uh it's not every day that i hear somebody mention that they are interested in embase uh and oh okay so i'm i mean I'm out here in LA and I feel like nobody's aware of Embase. Uh, okay. But, uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, what your relationship is with that scene and what your favorite recordings are and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I'll, I'll say a little bit about Steve Coleman for those who don't know. Um, he's a, he's an alto saxophonist and, and composer and improviser who has a background in jazz, um, but around the mid 1980s, he started taking his music in a really different direction that became uh, M-Bass. Um, and, and for those unfamiliar with it, um, M-Bass is an acronym um, that stands for Macro Basic Arrays of Structured Extemporizations, um, which sounds really nerdy uh, and dorky, but it's, it's kind of, it's a pretty simple concept, um, honestly. It's it's basically, um, and he describes all of this on his on his website in explicit detail um, on mbase.com. But um, basically, he describes it not as a style or genre, but more just as a philosophy of approaching music making. Um, 
And so he says very simply that Embase is a means to express uh, human experiences using structure and improvisation. That's it. Um, so of course that's very, very general. And then the question would arise, okay, so is jazz and bass or other kinds of, <laughs> you know, already existing styles of music and bass. Um, so, but of course, Coleman himself has his own style within M bass, right? And, a, a, and a, he's, of course, by far the most well-known M bass musician. Um, so, so I've referenced him earlier because his music, um, it, it sounds vaguely jazz-like and he does play a lot of jazz venues, but I would say it's really not jazz. I, I think it's something very different. Um, he he made a very conscious effort and still does to um, kind of return to a more African conception of mm -hmm. music making. Um, you know, people say traditionally, at least, that jazz is kind of, you know, African rhythm plus Western harmony, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's the classic thing that you hear. Um, with Coleman... I like to imagine it as turning up the African rhythm side of that a lot mm -hmm. um, in more ways than one and turning down the Western harmony side of it in a lot of ways entirely. Um, so for example, you know, I've, I've studied the ways in which Coleman's music um, kind of mimics an African drum ensemble in a lot of ways, even though it's not entirely, um, there, there are drums in almost all of his music, but even with the melodic instruments, it mimics the, the members of a, of a West African drum ensemble. So mm -hmm. one of the kind of, um, one of the elements of his music that really stands out is um, the fact that most of the time his drum set parts and his bass parts are completely notated, um, or at least are through composed, I should say. He doesn't write down most of his music, but um, most of the drum set parts are set and the bass parts are set, they might vary from it slightly, um, but it's not kind of the thing you see in a lot of contemporary jazz music, for example, in which the drummer gets a bass part and right. just grooves, you know? Um, and I like that stuff too, but but M, but Steve Coleman's M bass uh, music is, is very different from that. Um, and so, it has, in a lot of ways, it has a jazz form in terms of, you know, head, solos, head. Um, but just the structure and the way that it works is just so different um, and so unique. And, and I was introduced to him, I believe, in 2016. So not that long, not that, not that long ago. Um, I was participating in a summer program run by trumpeter Ralph Alessi. Mm. Um, and, a, and they were mentioning Steve Coleman. Um, I had never heard of him before that. This was kind of in the beginning of my time in college. Um, and so they said, like, go listen to uh, Black Science by Steve Coleman. Um, so that's what I did. And it, it completely, it, it sounds tr like cliche, but it just like rocked my world. Um, totally. So that was the first Steve Coleman album I heard. Um, that's one of his earliest albums from the 90s. Um, but 
he he's so prolific like he has mm -hmm. over 30 full-length albums um i i still have not delved into all of them myself even though i'm such a big fan i kind of go <laughs> kind of slowly um through his music because it's so rich um so i kind of have i know his earliest music pretty well um including black science and other records um like rhythm people mm. that's another great one um his very first one is called motherland pulse um and there's another great album called anatomy of a groove which is technically released under the name the m base collective um so it's kind it's kind of more of a compilation album featuring a bunch of different players rather than one set band um and then i know a lot of his most recent music well um such as um 2013's uh functional arrhythmias which is probably my favorite album of his mm -hmm. um that that's kind of his his uh i i consider that band like peak m bass peak coleman uh mm -hmm. which is him uh jonathan finlayson on trumpet anthony tid on electric bass and sean rickman on on drums that band is just absolutely incredible but he has a lot of other stuff um harvesting semblances and affinities is a great album as well the mancy of sound is a great album um lucidarium is a really special album too that that's where he does a lot of microtonal composing Interesting. Um, so i would i would recommend that as well but there's just so much it's overwhelming I've always had a soft spot for I think it's uh, the Tao of Mad Funk and oh yeah where they do I think that's the one where he does all the weird like Coltrane contrafacts that are like in like crazy meters and stuff but uh, yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting because um, if you read him talk about his own music he he actually rejects the concept of odd time mm -hmm. um, and that that's another way in which he has kind of um, embraced a more African conception of rhythm mm -hmm. because in West African drum music, there is no common time and odd time, right? Mm -hmm. Like those terms are, are products of European art music um, and things like five and seven and 11 are very common within that music and there's nothing odd about it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I, so that's, I think one of the ways in which his music is so different is because of that. And because all of the people he plays with just have this exceptional level of ability to sound so comfortable within these meters that we would, that most people, at least in America would say, okay, this is like a really complex meter. Um, but for Coleman and his collaborators, it's really no big deal just because they're, they've been steeped in that for so long. Totally. Um, I mean, I suppose they are odd meters in the sense that they are odd numbers, uh, but I mean, they're also prime right. numbers and uh, right. there's a whole bunch of numerology to get into. Um, yeah. <laughs> with with uh, Steve Coleman, what I love is like, it's so like in many ways, it's hyper formal, but in a way that's like not like, you know, super nitpicky or like it's more intuitive, intuitively formal or sort of like, you know, uh, something that's providing structure to improvise within. But uh, I know, I feel like in New York, it's very popular, like the whole free improvisation thing. And I'm wondering where those sort of intersect for you, because um, that's 
like i i love free improvisation but like mostly when it works out so that you don't hear that there is no structure like if somebody <laughs> says that there's no periodic element to it then it's like are you playing free time they're just like really floating all over the place right yeah so it's it's interesting because in in a sense Coleman's music and free improvisation cannot be more different from each other mm -hmm. right um like as i said drum set parts and and bass parts and in some cases guitar parts that are completely through composed and that have very little variation throughout a given tune um compared to free improvisation in which you know theoretically anything goes i was first introduced to free improvisation in that same program i i mentioned um and i was really taken by it at first mm -hmm. <laughs> um and and for the few years after that and then I don't know, like I kind of have soured on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't want to get myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> I was trying to not express any sourness myself. Um, but, yeah. You know, I'm trying to be generous. <laughs> there are a lot of musicians that I love and deeply, deeply respect <laughs> who primarily play free improvisation. Um, so let me just say that first. Um, first, I think that the the name free improvisation itself is kind of a misnomer. Totally. Um, I'm not sure if it's actually possible to have completely free improvisation. And it, it depends, of course, on what people mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, if what people mean is we're going to improvise everything from scratch, um, in that sense, it's free of preconceived structure. Well, mm Yes, I suppose that's possible, even though you're still going to be limited by the instruments that you're using. Mm -hmm. um, but if people mean by free that it is completely free of preconceived notions of music um, and free of all genre and idiom and style, um, I'm not convinced that that is actually possible. Mm -hmm. um, and if you hear that there are kind of there are a lot of different people who do free improvisation. I would say probably most people who end up in free improvisation have a jazz background, um, but there are plenty of people from a from a classical background or or an experimental music background that end up in free improvisation too. Um, and if you listen to those different groups of people do it, it sounds incredibly different totally. from each other, you know, and. Part of the reason for that is because due to their backgrounds, they have all of these presuppositions that they're bringing into the music about what music even sounds like in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and then the, the other thing about free improvisation is that I believe that music needs to have order, some mm -hmm. kind of order um, in order to be musical. Um, that order can be incredibly complicated. I don't think that order necessarily needs to be perceivable by the listener, at least at first. So by saying it, there needs to be order, I don't mean to imply that it needs to be, um, I don't know, simple enough to apprehend right. at first. Um, but I think that there is a lot of free improvisation that kind of embraces chaos and doesn't really leave from that embrace of chaos. 
Um, and that's where I start to have an issue with it and where it starts to come across as kind of an experiment in nihilism, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, but if you're, if you're freely improvising with the idea that we are starting from an unknown point and we're ending at an unknown point, but we're aiming to find some kind of order in the process, then I think that can be really cool. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, I mean, like, ideally, I think this type of situation would be like somebody, like two people having a conversation together. And it's like, oh, we didn't have a game plan for this. And something emerged out of it. And it was interesting. Uh, versus, you know, coming in and just being like, I'm going to be over here making whooshing sounds while you're over there doing something different. Like, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I, I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I like what you say about having a conversation, right? Because I, I think, again, it's cliche, but I think in a lot of ways, music is like language, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in very in every kind of music, there is a language that it operates with, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think some people have this idea about free improvisation that we can just throw off all conceptions of of style or of language and just play pure music whatever that means um and i think good free improvisation is the free improvisation that is inconsistent with that idea and actually ends up in a language totally, <laughs> and then yeah. bad free improvisation is the free improvisation that actually sounds like people just speaking gobbledygook to each other mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I suppose if you're having a conversation and somebody comes in immediately and they're like, I'm going to start saying some sort of freeform poetry that has a clear structure to it, you'd be like, oh, I'm intrigued versus just like, I, I have no sort of grammar in what I'm saying. And it's just, you know, a texture of words. But anyway, right. I, I'm, I'm getting myself into uh, uh, trouble here. Uh, speaking poorly about uh improvisation uh, i'm curious about extreme metal for you though uh you know that's a sort of like a whole other world that's uh interesting so what what in extreme metal are you into yeah so my experience with metal i will admit at the outset is fairly limited um, I'm not one of those people who can tell you all 300 subgenres of metal mm -hmm. um, and list bands for all of them. Um, the metal that I love is primarily within the like gent mm -hmm. sphere of things. So, you know, Meshuggah, Car Bomb, uh, Animals as Leaders, who actually just dropped a new album like two days ago. Um, and bands like that. Um, other related bands like the Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, and uh, yeah, th those are those are some good examples. Um, so kind of metal that, I like the metal most that grooves. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the really genius parts of a band like Meshuggah is that they have taken this incredibly heavy sound and then have made it groove. Mm -hmm. like crazy um i'm not super big on metal that is like really heavy on just like constant blast beats um i respect it and it's like incredibly impressive from a technical standpoint but mm -hmm. um i kind of seek out metal that grooves more 
the the technical thing is interesting and i've been talking to some like various uh people from metal bands about technicality because there's this whole idea of like you know brutal technical death metal or like just tech death and um, <laughs> like at a certain point it's like so is what you're saying that it's like athletic music or are you saying that it's cerebral music like are you saying that it's it takes a lot of muscle to play or like a lot of endurance or are you saying that it's like really really complicated stuff that you probably don't get um it, do either of those appeal to you more or less um I think usually when people use the term technical within a genre name, uh, they I think they are referring to the physicality of it, most mm. of all. Um, like you need you need to be an athlete to play mm -hmm. blast beats for five minutes straight. Like right. that's just a fact. Um, but I just don't I don't find that stuff very interesting musically. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I, I don't mean to imply that there's not a whole other kind of technicality that is um, necessary for the kind of metal that I like. Um, but it's not it's not your typical just like nonstop assault of sound um, mm -hmm. with a million notes per second, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, to play some of those Meshuggah riffs, I think it does require a certain degree of athleticism, but it's like it's more like a coordinated athleticism than it is like just like pure, pure muscle. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, no. Yeah. And it's and that that stuff is very cerebral, of course. Um, although you can headbang to it because almost exactly. all of it is in four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. Cool. Um, I'm trying to think what other topics we got here. Um, I guess um, I'm curious about your relationship to scores in general, because, you know, I came across your Hyperhocket on Score Follower, which is a super interesting channel. Um, but it strikes me that some of the stuff that's on that type of channel, like eventually I'm just like, they took all the time to notate this and somebody is not going to be able to parse this. And so, <laughs> like, when I saw Hyperhocket, it's like there's nothing crazy going on. It's like you're using normal means to, you know, come to an outcome instead of like, oh yeah, I, I have the newest, you know, copy of Photoshop that I have like edited my score <laughs> to like do this thing that, you know, I went from Lily Pond to Sibelius to like, whatever. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, what, what do you think about scores in general? Uh, like when are they useful? When are they not useful? Cause I mean, you know, Steve Coleman has like an interesting relationship with that sort of thing. And yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that I don't know For, within new music composition there kind of tend to be people who want to write notes and rhythms and then people who um, want to write much more I guess textural music um, or <laughs> a performer friend of mine affectionately refers to it as scratch and sniff music um, <laughs> okay. which there's a lot of uh well, you know, a lot of extended technique, not a lot of, um, you know, not a lot of set rhythms or meters or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, surprise, surprise, I, I'm more within that first camp for sure. Um, I think that as you get more into textual text, excuse me, textural music um, that is more concerned with things like timbre and less concerned with set pitches. 
and rhythms, I think that scores can be less useful for that, or at least they need to be reconceived. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you know, some people will write music that um, is very amorphous in terms of time, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that they'll achieve that is by doing away with bar lines entirely and basically just having full staves of music um, and very often we'll write a certain amount of seconds that the page is supposed to take or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, I think that that can work, but ultimately it's kind of trying to make a traditional score do what it was not really designed to do, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then there are other, other examples of, for example, graphic scores um, or, or textual scores in which the, the score is like, a poem or something like mm -hmm. a piece of text. Yeah. Um, and in, in that case, I have mixed feelings. Um, I think that sometimes they can succeed as scores, um, but oftentimes they kind of, they serve as a means to guide improvisation, um, which can be really great. Um, but but I think in a sense kind of ceases to be a score in the traditional sense um, in terms of communicating what the composer has, has written, you know? Um, and so sometimes when I see people sit down and like play a piece of text, I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, this, what's really going on here, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, it, with the rise of electronic music, um, there's the question of, you know, what role should written notation play in music that is electronic in nature and doesn't use um, a lot of these traditional parameters that we're used to with scores, right? Mm -hmm. So some people have advocated for using traditional scores for electronic music and just coming up with new notation. Um, other people have argued for a more graphic approach. I actually just read an article advocating for animated scores um, okay. for electronic music. Um, and I think a lot of the times it, it's also just a question of practicality, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm not the super hotshot composer, um, and I know that I have a very limited time with my performers, am I going to ask them to learn an entirely new form of notation just to play my piece? Right, yeah. Uh, you can, but it's a, it's a real risk, you know? Um, and so I think in that sense, at least at this stage in my career, I'm gravitating more towards traditional scores. First and foremost, because I, like I said, I, I'm more of a notes and rhythms guy, um, but also because in a lot of cases, um, there's just not that much time to rehearse the music. Yeah. And I, I'm going to write things in a language that people already understand. Totally. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of the graphical thing, like I love plenty of Anthony Braxton's music, but like I, I saw him perform in L.A. with this harpist and I could see the graphical, the graphical uh, score. And I was just like, huh. So you're interpreting that and, you know, I love Anthony Braxton's music, but uh, when you see somebody like Zanakis do it, it's like, okay, so you, you had this data structure that you, you know, like 
made into a graph and then you translated it to notation so that people could like get it you know it's like that's that's a little bit more my speed but yeah and yeah it's i'm sure some people would say no matter what's on the page you're interpreting mm -hmm. um but if if it's in a, a musical language that is new um or that is inherently ambiguous um and amorphous then i think it is it's much more interpretive and i I don't want to say that it's an invalid way of notating music, but I think that as the composer, you have to be content with your music, your composition being ambiguous on purpose. Yeah. Um, but of course, if you're Zanakis, <laughs> you can get away with, you know, making performers learn this whole new thing because you're <laughs> Zanakis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this reminds me also of like, I guess in the guitar world, like, uh, you know, people use tabs and then there's a certain type of guitarist or musician who will scoff at this. And it's like, hmm. it's literally the best way to communicate what to do because nobody's really concerned about what, where it fits on this staff. It's like, let's look at the staff of the guitar with a uh, different number of strings. But... And actually tablature is, is one of the earliest forms of music notation too. True. Yes. You have tablature that goes back to the 15th, 16th century. Mm -hmm. But People just need that uh, that conventional European traditional <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, cool. Well, is there anything else uh, you you have on your mind that you want to talk about, or should we start wrapping things up? Well, let's see. I mean, we we touched on a lot of things: metal, Steve Coleman, music notation. <laughs> um, I guess I can I can just mention some of the projects that I'm working on now. Yeah, please. Um, so. I mentioned that Hyperhocket is the only multiple trumpet piece that I've finished so far. Um, I'm revisiting one that I started before now, um, which will be designed for live performance. Um, so it's going to, in a sense, it's going to be for multiple trumpets in that I'm using uh, various kinds of looping, um, but it's gonna be for solo trumpet and electronics. Cool. Um, so keep a lookout for that. Um, I also recently finished a piece in which I'm really channeling my uh, gent influence into new music. Um, so this is for a, um, some colleagues of mine at, at my current institution, which is Stony Brook University in Long Island. Um, so that piece is for our electric guitar, vibraphone, and drum set. Um, and my, uh, my goal is to make the audience in this very classical concert hall uh, headbang. So <laughs> we'll see if I can accomplish that. Very cool. Um, any, uh, any favorite guitarists that you have of curiosity? Favorite guitarists? Yeah. Um, let's see. I am a big Alan Holdsworth fan. Ooh, cool. Um, Great answer. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> in terms of people that are still living, um, I love Miles Okazaki. Um, I'm a big Reza Bassi fan as well. Um, ben Monder, a uh, big fan of him. Um, much less well-known uh, player who I think is just incredible is this guy, Travis Reuter, hmm. um, who I would recommend you check out. Last name is R-E-U-T-E-R. Um, he, his music is kind of, kind of seems like contemporary jazz meets 
12 tone meets like hyper complex rhythms and meters. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's just some of the most amazing stuff. And he's a really, really unique soloist. Um, so I'm a big fan of him as well. Awesome. Cool. We'll have to look into him. Yeah. Um, I also, uh, I guess last thing I'll ask about is, um, I saw something about it, I think you said like alien folk jazz or something like that for this upcoming project. Um, oh yeah. Maybe somebody um, else's project that you were. Yeah. That's on? someone else's project. Um, that's a composer and, and drummer named Vicente Henson Atria, who is a Chilean composer who is a graduate composition student at Columbia. Um, so that's how I met him. Um, so he has a project called Orlando Furioso, um, which he calls um, alien folk jazz. Um, the alien coming from the fact that it's using all kinds of um, crazy microtonal tuning systems. Um, and then probably the folk jazz is more self-explanatory. Um, so it's, it's a really, really great ensemble. It was, it was fun part fun to be a part of. Um, and it was kind of one of the first times in which I had to get really serious about learning how to play microtonally on trumpet. Um, and not only that, but to just playing the written music was hard enough, but to try and improvise <laughs> over uh, microtonal changes uh, was a real trip. Um, so that, um, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say about it, but I will say that I believe the album is being released later this year. Um, cool. So, and, and I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. Excellent. Yeah, I suppose uh, the last, last, last thing that I'll ask, because uh, I would be remiss if I didn't, is uh, just if you have any sort of uh, wisdom that you've extracted from your time with George Lewis that you would bestow upon me or our listeners. Oh, wow. Uh, um... Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from, I, I have to call him Professor Lewis, I can't call him George. Um, <laughs> I, lear I learned a lot from Professor Lewis, um, although I only really worked with him for one semester, I'm ashamed to say. Um, at least when I was there, he primarily worked with graduate students. Mm. Um, but he, he was one of the few people in the department that I think really understood where I was coming from aesthetically you know mm -hmm. most new music composers come from a classical background um as i mentioned i come from an improvised music background and so um he he was very encouraging to me in terms of actually pursuing what i wanted to hear um and not trying to you know write something that i think other people want to hear mm -hmm. um and he's just he's just the man like his, his work on trombone and his work with computer music, he played on, he played with Steve Coleman years ago um, in some of his know. ensembles. Yeah. Um, but there is actually, I'll, I'll tell this one story. There's a very funny moment um, in one of our, he taught the undergraduate composition seminar um, once when I was there. Um, and I was grateful to have taken it with him. Um, and I had a, a peer, who I won't name, um, who, is, who is kind of very, acting very serious about the fact that he made handwritten scores. And he mm. would say, you know, once I write something down, I never change it, you know, and th th things like that. Um, and Professor Lewis was just like, it's like, you know what, man, like, you can do a lot of stuff with paper. You can 
rip it up you can throw it out you can draw shit on it mm -hmm. <laughs> basically just like totally blew up this kid's ego um but i think basically the deeper meaning of that was just and it it sounds very trite but just do what you're hearing mm -hmm. you know do it like don't don't try to you know fit into this like mode of the very serious austere composer who never smiles um just because right. he's so smart um no just like do what you're hearing um music even experimental music should be fun mm -hmm. um <laughs> and uh yeah i i would say that that was one of the biggest things i got from professor lewis and um i i hope he I hope he sticks around for a lot longer because he's he's just such an incredible artist. Absolutely. Well, I suppose that's a good note to end on. Um, cool. Well, David, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, I'll put all your uh, websites and stuff in the bio or the subscription, whatever it's called, <laughs> description. Uh, and yeah, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely, John. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. I'll talk to you in the future. All right. Take care. You too.